and welcome to the Talk They Hear You podcast, What Parents Are Saying, Prevention Wisdom, Authenticity, and Empowerment. This podcast is brought to you by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, also known as SAMHSA. Talk They Hear You is a national prevention campaign that aims to help parents and caregivers talk with their kids about the dangers and risks of underage drinking and other drug use. In this podcast, we hear what is working and what isn't, and what might assist in our efforts to help kids navigate away from alcohol and other drugs. I'm Debbie Burnt, Director of Parent Movement 2.0, and I'll be your host. As a reminder, the views expressed here are not necessarily those of SAMHSA or the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Welcome back, Dr. Collier, to our next episode, where we are going to continue the conversation from last time, which was focused on brain development and what the basic brain functions are and how to start to understand them as a parent. And we're going to talk this time about the risky behaviors, how dopamine works in human development, something called the hedonic threshold. I'm going to ask listeners not to panic. I feel like you have a remarkable ability to explain these complex topics and really dive into something you started talking about last time called brain-based praise. And what does that mean? So tell us where we should start. Should, should we talk about more human development? Debbie, dopamine? I think we should start with just a recap okay. of last time, right? I think okay. it's important to summarize brain development grows in two phases. If you guys remember that first phase where lower executive functioning skills start coming online from birth to around 11, 12, then the second scaffolding level starts from a puberty up to 24, 25, 26, when our higher level skills come on board. And what you can do as a parent is really utilize the use it or lose it rule to your advantage. And that means having awareness that your child needs to practice those executive functioning skills or they're going to lose them. So not just all the academic things that are going on in their world and all the other skills they're using, but basic executive functioning skills are based upon the use it or lose it. A big problem, I think, in our society today is we overfunction for our kids. We do too okay. much for them. A lot of times it's easier to do it ourselves, but unfortunately that kind of self-centered parenting gets us into trouble because then our kids don't get to learn the skills. So I think that making sure that you develop long strings of neurons in your child's brain for problem solving and decision making means letting them make some decisions and solve their problems. If you solve their problems and make their decisions, they're going to grow long strings of neurons for dependency on you. So right. that's really where we want to transition. Okay. So if you know and have memorized the executive functioning skills, there are two short lists. And let's repeat what they are. There's that zero to 12 or elementary school to middle and then middle to high school skills. So do you mind? Absolutely. No, I don't. So to recap, the executive functioning skills that are growing during that first phase, birth to puberty initiating tasks independently, shifting and flexible thinking, planning, prioritizing, organizing, working memory, self-monitoring, selective attention, and coordination. 
These are your basic skills that you need to wake up in the morning, remembering your breakfast, finishing your homework, getting out the door on time. Then we move to the second phase of brain development. Those executive functioning skills that are really starting to mature and come online then are symbolic or abstract reasoning, impulse control, decision-making, problem-solving, emotion regulation and frustration tolerance, judgment, and empathy. Now, these are the skills that you need to get up and out of your parents' house and becoming a fully self-supporting relational adult. Love it. Yes. Yes. So important for parents to remember all of these are based upon the brain's rule, use it or lose it. Okay. We want to make sure that we figure out how to ensure that our kids are using these skills. And one of the best ways to do that is figuring out like what they're already good at and praising them for that. But then also figuring out, okay, which one does my child need to work a little bit more on? And then praising for that using brain-based praise. So can you explain to us a little more deeply what that brain-based praise really means and how we might exhibit that or do that as a parent? Definitely. This kind of took about six months of my life. I went on a tangent on researching praise and I learned so much about how to utilize this as a trainer, you know, that role that you want to take on as a parent in that second phase of brain development. And so, okay, here's what I learned, that there are a couple different types of praises. The first one might be performance-based praise. And this is when we say, nice job, you know, good work. And there's nothing wrong with that praise. But if you predominantly just use performance-based praise, you could inadvertently cause a child to have performance anxiety, right? And base their worth on their performance. And so you want to use that, but use it sparingly along with another kind of praise called intelligence-based praise. Okay. And so that's the kind of praise where we say, you're so smart. Oh my God, that's not going to be a problem for you because, oh my God, you're so intelligent. Like you got this. And so there's nothing wrong with that except for if that's all a child hears and then they finally engage in an activity that's really tough for them, that's a challenge. And if they fail at it or do poorly at it, they may attribute that failure to not being smart enough rather than it being an effort issue, right? right? So use a little bit of performance, a little bit of IQ, and a lot of brain-based praise. And what I mean by that is knowing the executive functioning skills and using that in your everyday language. And so, you know, one of the first skills we learn is how to initiate tasks on our own. And so uh, like a practical way that you could do this as a parent is when your child takes out the trash without you having to remind him, you say, dude, thanks so much for taking out the trash. I didn't even have to remind you. Wow. That is brain-based praise for initiative. Okay. Right? So being able to say, oh my God, how did you plan that? That was great. I really loved how you showed empathy for your sister today. Thank you for doing that. Mm. Wow. I love how you're thinking about this. Tell me more about that. Mm. Ooh, you know what? This morning when we switched from breakfast to having to go to school, you switched tasks so quickly. Nice work. Do you see where I'm That's what brain-based praise is, is knowing those basic executive functioning skills that we use in everything. 
and figuring out how to praise to increase that skill and to reinforce the use of that skill. I'm being catapulted back 20 years going, ooh, wish I would have <laughs> known this. <laughs> really, right, exactly. Right. Uh, yeah. And especially when they're younger, so uncomplicated. It's getting out the door on time. Yeah. It's all that, like you said, task initiation, that whole list is kind of unfraught. The, the issues get more, I don't know, bigger, more complicated as they get older. It's so easy to fail when you're younger as well. It seems like there's fewer implications. Or... Well, there are fewer implications because as you grow older, you're starting to deal with more risky behavior. And so one of the things I get asked a lot by parents is about alcohol. They'll say things to me like, well, shouldn't I let them drink when they're younger so they can practice? Mm. You know, because if I withhold it, then when they get older, they're going to go crazy. And so here is what the research says about that, is that the longer you delay substance use, the more you give that brain an opportunity to grow all of its executive functioning skills. And then when they go to college, they're going to go crazy anyway. But the kids who have delayed alcohol use or any substance use for that matter, they actually learn from their mistakes quicker, they have less negative consequences, and they're able to shift and mature in a way that's a little bit more profound than kids who stay stuck and struggle with risky behavior. So the idea behind knowing your child's neuro whereabouts is not only bolstering those executive functioning skills, just so they'll be better at those things, mm -hmm. but also because those are the skills they need to go out into a world where there are so many temptations to engage in risky things or get out of balance with behaviors that could have negative consequences for us. So I want to talk specifically about the risky behaviors, but before we dive into that, can you give us some brain-based praise examples for that older 12 to 25 time. Yes. Okay. Yes. So if you think about if somebody makes a good decision, oh man, that was a great decision. Tell me what you were thinking about that. Ooh, I really liked how you solved that problem. How did you do that? Oh my God, you aced your chemistry test. How did you do that? So basically what I'm doing is I'm taking the executive functioning skill and I'm not saying nice impulse control, Johnny. You have to make it your own hip slick and cool way of talking to your kid, right? right? But you kind of slip that in, and especially when they're older, and they're used to you doing it too. But then I'm also asking the second question. How did you do that? What were you thinking? Oh, I liked how you thought about that. Tell me the steps that you were thinking in your brain. What I'm asking a child to do is use abstract conceptual understanding to go back in and tell me what their brain was thinking. So I have a great story that illustrates this. I had a client who came into my office and actually said that it was a math test. And he said, dude, I aced my math test. And this was really big because he had been in trouble for the past year because of academic issues and risky behavior issues. And so the fact that he aced a test was amazing. So I used brain-based praise and I said, dude, that's awesome. Tell me how you did that. And he goes, I don't know. <laughs> And you guys know as a parent how often you hear, I don't know, I don't know. 
it really is a cop-out answer, mm -hmm. right? Kids just don't want to engage in the brain power to tell you how they did that. So they just put you off with, I don't know. So I said to him, okay, well, tell me when you figure it out. Mm -hmm. That is a little bit of brain-based praise. The next week he comes in, he doesn't say anything. The week after that, he comes in, he sits on my sofa and he was like, I figured it out. And I was like, what, what, what did you figure out? I couldn't remember what our conversation was about. He said, well, I figured out how I, I aced the test. And this really drove home a lesson for me is that when we ask a child a question that is a reflective question, even if they say, I don't know, their brain is still thinking about it. It's still growing dendrites for abstract, reflective listening, for self-monitoring, for checking, problem solving, decision making. So a lot of times I will hear parents say, well, you need to do this or you need to do that when they're a teenager. And a lot of times that's a fear-based response because we want them to be safe. What I want parents to do that was really good brain-based parenting is take what you want to say and move it into a question. So instead of saying, well, you need to do this, to stop and say, okay, well, what do you think you need to do next? Well, tomorrow when you're in that situation, what do you think your options are going to be? What do you think your choices should be? What would be the best decision in that situation? That is actually empowering them to come up with all kinds of different answers. And sometimes when kids say, I don't know, I'll say, okay, well, you think of one and I'll think of one. Mm -hmm. and, 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 right? and you kind of volley back with them on that rather than just barking orders and lecturing, which, of course, you know, their brain turns off after 30 seconds of that. Boy. Have so many reactions to that. I kind of, are there any more examples, you know, actual topics or other experiences with parents that you can share with us? I mean, I, sometimes I feel like it's language that I lacked as a parent. And even that idea of, okay, you think of one and I'll think of one. Because when your child disengages with you from a conversation as a parent, then what, you know, I mean, whether it's either an, I don't know, and I love the, well, tell me when you figure it out. Yeah. That's a great one, but a way to not just have to accept their disengagement. Cause I think it makes parents a little crazy and lots of parents will just stop parenting after what, cause well, my kid doesn't want to talk to me. So I don't, I don't even know how to. Well, and I, th I think first of all, not taking that personally because kids not want to talking to you is normal and healthy development. But it sucks yeah. as a parent. Yeah. It just does. And, and you also have to know what's going on. And so I think being able to empower yourself as a parent and say to a child, hey, kiddo, I know you don't want to talk to me. And that's OK, because I get it. That's where you are. Your peers are more important than me right now. But I still need to know what's going on. And so I need you to give me three things that happened today. One thing you hate, one thing you love, and one thing that maybe you like about school. Really creative with how you ask them that, right? Is instead of asking your child, how was your day? Which we know we're going to get fine. You know, that answer <laughs> is be able to say, tell me what you hated about school today. And parents usually don't think about it from that, right? But think about a teenager. What is the most important thing? The teenager that I had in my office this morning, her most important thing was what happened at the roller skating rink last mm. week. You know, it's not the drug and alcohol program that she's currently in and not using, right? And so thinking a little bit more like a teenager and just connecting and attuning to what's important to them is one of the best ways to get them talking. But also 
setting an expectation that you still need information from them and that that's required. I like that. Yeah. It's easy to stop parenting, especially in high school, you know, and just be like, "Mm." (laughs) so. Yeah. I think what you just said is so profound and we feel guilty about it. It's easy to stop parenting because I think we don't know the skills that we need to switch into. We're so used to being a director. Now we're like, okay, what what does it mean to be a trainer of my teenager's frontal lobe? And that's where I want to empower parents to learn executive functioning skills and to use the tools and the scripts for brain-based parenting to attune to your teenager, which is, they're not the easiest creatures to attune to. Right. And I think we were saying last time to tune into this executive function stuff really does take that feeling of this is all personal, not completely out of the equation, but kind of Mm -hmm. puts it to the side. And even just listening to your examples just now, there's such creativity in those examples and how you approached, okay, you think of one, I'll think of one. And I think that creativity obviously comes from your incredible expertise, but for a parent, I think when things don't feel so personal, there's a little bit of objectivity, you can get more creative and you can find ways that really do feel good. So I guess I feel quite optimistic. Good, good, good. Right. Because rather than feeling shame about parenting less when your kids get into high school, I really want to empower parents to feel like, okay, less is actually more, but what does less look like? Okay. So let's shift a little bit and let's talk about the risky behaviors. We're obviously a show that focuses on alcohol and drug use. But I think there's a lot of risky behaviors in that teenage time. So tell us kind of your full scope, and then we'll focus on the drugs and alcohol and what's happening in the brain. How did that fabulous 16-year-old start using IV drugs? Just what in the world? What do we need to know? Well, so for me, it's really interesting. I didn't have refusal skills. Mm -hmm. I didn't even know what I should say no to. Interesting. I think my mother just trusted me so much. I was such a good kid that she just didn't, it wasn't on her radar to teach me those things. And so when I was researching these topics, I had this really amazing opportunity many years ago to create a prevention program for a school, which then I created into the model of teaching the neurodevelopmental effects of risky behavior to kids. And I started to realize there are so many different high-risk behaviors out there that kids want to learn about, and they do very similar things to the brain. And so let's teach kids about how they affect the brain and then how to protect that brain as it's growing and developing. So it's not just about parents protecting their kids' frontal lobes, but it's about empowering kids to learn this information, starting very young and working up through. And if we think about risky behavior, we have to think about the role of dopamine. And dopamine is just one neurotransmitter in our body that signals when we're doing something good for survival. So a great example is when you get hungry, your dopamine levels start to plummet and you start to feel moody and hangry and irritable. Your limbic system is saying, hey, you need to go do something good for my survival. 
And until you do, I'm going to make you feel really uncomfortable. And then when you eat, you get an increase in dopamine. Now, there are other neurotransmitters, hormones, and peptides that are at play here, but really they all terminate in either an increase or a decrease in dopamine. And if you think about it, it just is like your body's feedback. It tells you what you need to survive when. Drugs and alcohol increase dopamine levels too high above what is called a hedonic threshold. So the word hedonic means pleasure. And since dopamine increases the pleasure in our system to give us a reward for doing what it thinks it needs to survive, things like alcohol, drugs, and some other risky behaviors inadvertently increase dopamine levels too high above that threshold. And when we go above that threshold, that's when structural changes start to occur in our brain. And so when I say structural changes, what I mean is that when you flood all your synapses with too much dopamine, your brain expresses all the dopamine and then it can't express enough for the next day or two or three. If you think about, if you've ever had a hangover from alcohol, you experience that. Your brain is depleted of dopamine and you feel like poop for a while and you're dehydrated and then your brain starts to heal and regenerate its dopamine and you kind of go back to that. The second structural change is not as easy to heal from. And that's because when you flood the synapses with so much dopamine, you're actually creating new structure. So you're growing more and more receptor sites for dopamine in certain parts of your brain. And so it's really important not to go over your hedonic threshold because that's when you start making those structural changes. And once you have too many receptor sites for dopamine and you have changed the way that your system expresses dopamine, those changes don't go away. Yikes. They just don't. And I know like some... I want to give you a real life example and then the substance example. Think about your favorite food and where you go to get the best of your favorite food. Okay. For me, so I'm a meat eater. Ribeye steak is my favorite food. And there's a restaurant really close to my house that makes the best ribeye. And so my husband and I go to all kinds of steakhouses and I live in Texas, so they're everywhere. (laughs) But I always compare any steak that I eat to the one at the restaurant down the road, because that one spiked my dopamine levels higher than any other one. Okay. I love that. Okay. So that ribeye spiked my dopamine levels pretty close to, or maybe even above my hedonic (laughs) threshold. And so now my brain wants to go back to that spike over and over and over again. And so it's not a completely unhealthy thing to do. So that's okay. But if I binge drink alcohol, I'm going to spike my dopamine levels potentially higher than my hedonic threshold, depending upon how much I drink, what my genetics do, what my liver does. Now, the next time I go out, I may crave that peak of dopamine. Got it. Instead of the peak of dopamine that came from just hanging out with my friends on a fun Saturday night, and smiling and laughing and watching movies or going to the roller rink, whatever, you know? And so what we want to do is protect our child's brains from dopamine spikes that go above that threshold. Because once we go above that, 
our brain always wants to go back to that thing that our brain thinks means better for survival. Whether that be (laughs) the best ribeye steak, a pornography site, a, a certain type of alcohol, a drug, binging on technology or video games. Yeah, gambling. Gambling, all of that, exactly. So are you saying once we go above the threshold that that is where structural changes happen? And so that's why we're trying to avoid that. We're trying to avoid that because it could potentially lead to abuse, overuse, or addiction. Okay. Okay. And is addiction when those structural changes can't change back? Or is that not how to think about it? Well, yeah, it's, that's a little too black and white. It really is a continuum, right? And everybody's brain is different because of the environment and genetics that we bring to the table. So everybody really is different. But for me, I know because I've had my genetics tested that my brain does not make the same amount of dopamine levels or express the same amount that other people do. And that is the case for many people who have a genetic predisposition to addiction. And so my actual hedonic threshold is lower. Interesting. That means I have to really stay in balance with anything that could potentially spike my dopamine levels too high because I might overuse, abuse, or get addicted to them. So it's definitely a continuum and it depends upon what you bring to the table. So two college freshmen may binge drink the exact same amount for the exact same amount of time one becomes an alcoholic and one does not. Okay. Why is that? Well, it most likely has to do with genetics, environment, executive functioning skills. And that leads me to really the biggest reason why I started teaching parents this is because high-risk behavior not only creates structural changes in the brain that could lead to abuse or addiction, but it also shuts off the frontal lobe. Mm. Talk to us about if you, that. If you look at a functional MRI of somebody while they're intoxicated, you see the frontal lobe is off. Somebody who's high, somebody who's been using pornography for hours at a time, they're, somebody who's been using first-person shooter video games, the frontal lobe shuts off and does not get used like the other parts of the brain that spike dopamine levels, the limbic system, the nucleus accumbens. Right. And remember the use it or lose it rule. If your brain is off, you don't get to use it. So those executive functioning skills don't grow. And as a therapist who treats people who have addiction, young and old, I get a lot of people who come to my office and say, oh my God, am I completely screwed? Because (laughs) I didn't stop using until my third DWI when I was 45 and I started at 12. Well, that person may have arrested development, which means the executive functioning skills that should have grown between 12 and 25 did not grow the way they should. But the good news is we grow dendrites for the rest of our lives. So we can learn that now, right? But remember, you learn much faster when you're a kid and you're growing all of those connections. Like, and because plasticity, the flexibility of our brain, it peaks at the age of 25. Right. And then, unfortunately, it's all downhill from there afterward. (laughs) But at least there's still some dendrites that are growing. That just makes me feel better for all kinds of reasons. Yes, yes. And this is why I go back to my saying, you have scientific justification to 
be your child's frontal lobe until they grow one of their own. So when kids say to me like, well, everybody's drinking, why won't you let me drink? Well, I don't know about everybody else, kiddo, but I know that alcohol arrests brain development. And my job is to protect your frontal lobe, especially if you're not gonna. (laughs) And so the rule is no underage drinking. And when you get to 21 and that's what you want to do, okay, I'm not going to stop you from that. But hopefully by that time, you will have the impulse control to take really good care of yourself when you do ingest it. Awesome. Ah, that's great. So I think that's a really good segue into our, our next session, which is really on tools and techniques and tips. Like what can you do as a parent to set these rules and limits about risky behavior in a way that is really effective for your kids. All right. That sounds like a perfect plan, Dr. Collier. And the Talk They Hear You campaign has some great materials as well. And this really cool mobile app that allows parents to practice some of this language that we've been talking about. So everyone stay tuned, come back and listen to our next episode. We want to remind listeners that all Talk They Hear You materials, including this podcast, can be found on the Talk They Hear You website, which is talktheyhearyou, all spelled out, no spaces, dot samsa.gov. SAMHSA is S-A-M-H-S-A dot gov. Please share this site and this podcast with your friends. The more we can be in conversation with each other, the better for everyone, especially our kids. Lastly, we would like to hear from you. Would you like to be on our show? Do you have stories to share or tips or techniques that have worked or not worked for you as a parent? Do you have questions for us or any feedback for topics or improvements of any kind? We know that your input will help us design the most useful interviews possible. For this, please contact us at whatparentsaresaying at gmail.com. Again, all spelled out, what parents are saying at gmail.com. Thank you for joining us and we'll see you next time. 